Welcome to the Truth to Power Show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, VGR Nathan. And with us today is co-host Bruce Whitaker. Welcome, Bruce. Hey, good morning. Happy Monday. Happy June. Happy Monday. So uh, our featured guest is Matthew Lippman. His collection, Mesmerizingly Sadly Beautiful, won the 2018 Levis Prize and is published by Four Way Books. He has published five of the collections of poems, including The New Year of Yellow, Salami Jew, American Chew, uh, Monkey Bars, and Little Gut Magic. He is the editor and founder of the web-based project Love's Executive Orders um, at loveexecutiveorder.com. Uh, welcome, Matthew. Hi, how you doing? Thanks for having me. Thank you, thank you. Yep. So why don't we start off the conversation about Love's Executive Order and tell us a little bit about that web project and how it evolved and all this kind of stuff. Uh, sure. Um, <clears throat> uh, Trump got elected in 2016 and... Um, uh, I was feeling like I needed to do something and I'm not really the type of person who will go out and march or um, sign petitions, but I'm a poet and I had this idea of uh, creating a website that would post a poem every Friday by an American poet um, that somehow commented on the state of the presidency, the country, the culture and what was happening. And uh, it's been going on um, since January of 2016. We've had an incredible range of poets from the former uh, U.S. poet laureate Juan Felipe Herrera to Jericho Brown to Nathan McLean to Eileen Miles. Um, and uh, it's just been like a way of creating some kind of poetic, historical, chronicle community uh, online. Good, good. Yeah. And um, tell us a little bit about your own practice. How is it? How is the? Has it affected your practice, or has the? Uh, as, as your own poetry, or have you started to comment on these kinds of issues? Oh yeah, I mean, like it's really hard not to write about what's happening in America, in the community, in the neighborhood, um, and uh, I think it's important as a as a poet to uh, not just write about birds, um, but write about birds and um, how the political and social and cultural landscape is all working, working together. Um, so I think, uh, you know, if you're asking if the website has affected my own process, um, I don't know if it's affected my own process, but I, I really am, uh, committed and concerned with writing about um, cultural events and what's going on out there on the streets and in my classroom and in my house and how it all works in together. So tell us a little bit about how uh, COVID and the recent uh, protests have affected your education life. Like how the students been reacting, how have they been uh, talking about it or anything like right. that? Yeah. Well, in terms of COVID, um, I work at this uh, small independent school here in Boston, and, and it's it, it's very tech-based. So we were sent home on a Thursday, and on Monday, we were all up online um, teaching via Google Meets. Um, and it was weird for 
Well, it was always weird. <laughs> um, but I think after the first week, we all sort of got um, uh, semi-comfortable with it. It's tough, though, because so much of what teaching is about is about creating community in the classroom. And it's really difficult to do that uh, via a screen. Um, and the kids were bummed, especially the seniors. You know, they had this expectation of having this beautiful spring and then graduating and being together and there's so much love that comes out of this this end of of their high school experience and they didn't get to experience that the way um kids in the past have and it's limiting too in terms of the educational process because it's really hard to stay on a screen for more than 15 or 20 minutes and have it be something that's productive uh, pedagogically. So that, that's been uh, a challenge, it's been tough. Um, in terms of uh, all of this uh, stuff going on with Black Lives Matter and Floyd and um, this, the incident in Central Park, kids, um, they really wanna talk about it. You know, they're, they'd rather talk about this kind of stuff and how it's affecting them. Um, as opposed to talking about, you know, where a comma should go or the great Gatsby or, you know, it's, uh, but I gotta be honest, you know, it's like, I live in a kind of, uh, you know, it's Boston and, and um, it's sort of over there. It's not right, you know, in front of us, it's over there, but it's still very affecting to a lot of them. Well, I think you're, what you said is something a lot of, uh, we're all of on, on this conversation, people of certain privilege, which we want to acknowledge. And I think it also makes it more challenging to try to be, to respond effectively. Yeah. Um, you know, we all have, I coming from the Midwest with a lot of friends in the Midwest and in red states, um, I'm exposed to a lot of thinking that I have enormous problems with and I know my own thinking, I often have enormous problems with when I really examine it or share or talk to someone who's more deeply involved in these issues. Um, what, uh, what strategies are you using or that you think could, could, you would recommend to all of us as we try to um, handle the emotions around this, the misinformation, the politicization of this, uh, the distortion? Um, this, the, the problem of getting to the real truth of who is doing the violence and why can we not reform the police? Um, you know, these fundamental questions and, and what is the step, what is the path forward? All these questions are around us. How do we try to pull out of all this confusion some path to sanity? <laughs> I have no idea. Um, but, uh, you know, that's really... It's a really difficult question. I mean, the other day, um, I was sitting on my porch and uh, the video of, of, Flo of Floyd had just come out and I couldn't watch it. Um, I, I can't watch any of these videos. Uh, they're just too disturbing and I don't understand how people can watch them. I think they're important on some level for the discussion, but even that feels kind of weird and gross to me that we have to watch videos of people getting abused and killed to have a discussion. Um, and so I started writing this poem and 
the thing that was bothering me about writing the poem was that I could write this poem on my porch as a white privileged guy. And then the poem could be, will be over and I can just go back to my white privileged guy life. Um, and I, I, I have the, the, the luxury, if you will, of disappearing or vanishing. You don't have to worry about somebody coming up my front steps and putting their knee on my neck or whatever, or getting in my car. And I think that's kind of the, the way to start healing or thinking about these things as white people um, is to understand on some level, however you might be able to understand it, um, that we have these luxuries to go back to our little lives and not have to worry. I think worrying is exhausting. I think it's exhausting. I think, you know, and, and, uh, and as a teacher, you know, I, I am very aware and of how necessary it is to have these conversations with my kids and to let the kids drive the conversation because they're really the ones who, um, speak the truth in a way that, that I can, I mean, we, we, uh, in my department at school in the English department, um, we had, um, a visit from the black student union. Uh, they came to one of our faculty meetings. You know, these are 14, 15, 16 year old people telling us, um, things about our curriculum and what kind of books we should think about and what kind of literature we should think about, uh, including into the curriculum that have to do with celebration, you know, and of, of black lives, of brown lives, of gay lives, of, um, uh, and, and we're, we're, we're all sitting there, the adults, like feeling schooled, you know, like, yeah, and, and we need more of that. That's, you know, we need more of that. That's what we need um, as educators. I don't know. I think mindfulness is the most important thing, you know, you know, just being mindful of the other, being aware, being accepting. I don't know. I, I just like, I'm a heart guy. I'm a love guy. So I feel like let's just all just be heart and love. I know it's not that easy, but. Um, I think it's definitely a first stop. It's definitely a, a heart step that we have to, you know, experience the center of ourselves. That we have to kind of act from a place of groundedness that we can't be acting from a place of reactionary, but rather acting from a place of, you know, true love, true compassion, and not kind of just be like, oh, I'm just gonna, you know, act violently or, or this kind of thing. But we want to try to get to a place where our voice will be heard and, uh, and walking that fine line between being heard. Sometimes people don't want to hear, you know? Yeah, so, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's actually, you know, I, one of my favorite uh, Michael Moore movies is, uh, I think it was What Country Are We Going to Conquer Next, where he goes around Europe and illustrates cases of where European countries have adopted American practices and then far exceeded our achievement in realizing them. And in Iceland, he was talking to their government people about the role of women in politics. And he was talking to three Icelandic women and they said, basically looking, this was a couple of years ago now, looking in America, she said, you obviously don't care for each other. And that's the part of this country, of the US culture that is so baffling to outsiders, this lack of fundamental failure of empathy 
Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And and yet in mindfulness circles, we know empathy has been a major priority for decades now. And you even hear it in corporate training um, that you know developing empathy is, first of all, they kind of weaponize it because empathy develops better consumer products, but um, it's been a priority in so many places and yet we still fail as a culture to properly exercise empathy. Um, you know, I hear people responding more, much, much more to the looting than to the underlying cause. You know, they're so distracted yeah. by the symptom, they're not able to understand what would motivate someone to try to express their anger in this way. Yeah, I don't understand. I don't understand personally how we've gotten to this place. Yeah. You know, I mean. I, I grew up in New York City in the late 60s and early 70s, and my parents were super involved in all the movements, you know. Um, we were very liberal, and there was all this work going on. And it felt like things were moving somewhere. You know, even when I was a kid, um, you know, there was there was this, you know, ongoing fight for... For a, for a better life, to be more empathetic and loving and accepting uh, on all people. And, and um, it's 2020 and it feels like we've taken a hundred steps back. Um, so I don't know. I don't, I, don't, uh, I don't know how you teach empathy. I mean, I think that comes out of the house, right? It comes out of the home. It comes out of mm. parents and, and your community. And um, I, I, don't, I don't know how... I don't know how you do it. I don't think you do it through books. You know, I don't think you do it through literature, um, maybe music, but, I, but really I think it comes out of your community. Um, well, there uh, was a, uh, a kind of a, uh, there was a very famous book that came out around 91 and I forget the exact title, but something about the crisis of 2020. And it was written 30 years ago. And these two futurologists were noticing that the values of baby boomers and Gen X were very much about individualism, you know, the me generation. And one of the outcomes of that, which they had already seen progress up to that point in 91, was a collapse in faith in government and a collapse in faith in common effort. Mm-hmm. And, and you've seen since then, the public sector in the country was completely starved and both liberals and conservatives have very, very little faith or trust in government, which doesn't play the role it used to in our culture. And they even predicted that the next generation, and they, they coined the word millennial in 91, would turn that around because they would have a sense of common effort and a trust in common effort. And I think we might be at the one of the pivot points in that evolution as yeah. Boomers age out, and uh, the the consequences of this self involvement play out in such horrific ways. Um, the the people marching when you when you hear them talk are advocating a whole different point of view and a whole yeah. different orientation. Yeah, I think I mean it's really frustrating. All of it, it's really frustrating, and you know. Uh, I spent, I've spent a lot of time over the last 10 years in my classroom uh, talking about these issues of equity and inclusion and diversity and enlightenment. And, 
and it's really wonderful and it's beautiful. But somewhere in, at the end of 2018, early 2009, it, I began to feel like I was spinning my wheels and that like this kind of talk can only go so far and where do we go next? And, and I, I, this may just be completely crazy, but music, right? I mean, you, you, this, this, this idea that somehow music can bring people together. Um, I saw that Bobby McFerrin clip where he gets up and he brings this crowd of people together vocally, musically, and it was unbelievable to me how quickly the, the sounds of, of those voices created, at least for a small amount of time, some kind of um, scintillating, joyous community. <laughs> now, I mean, this is completely naive and simplistic on my part, but I just, I, out of my frustration, this seemed to speak to me. Um, uh, I, th I think there's a similar argument in theater where this past year, the researchers in Britain discovered that uh, in a in a course of a theater experience, the heartbeats of the audience align. Yeah. And wow. um, and I and I hate to uh, you know pump this one any further, but Hamilton has shown that um, in in all the ways that it has really activated, particularly young people, about the um, a side, you know, it's a version of our history that they can very much, uh, you know, sign on to. Um, I think has has been part of a channel of, of re-engagement with society that this younger generation has gone through. Um, yeah. There are shared experiences can definitely, um, I think, I think help, and I definitely that the limitations of each strategy emerge. You know, their spiritual path can be very individual and narcissistic um if it, it's all about whether you're using the tool properly or not it's not intended right. to be that but right. often if you have an orientation of being self-centered you're going to use that to drive that orientation if yeah. you're drive trying to be productive you're going to in a way misuse it to enhance your productivity so right. yeah. that's that's where the cultural wisdom comes in yeah, right. <laughs> So I we also take a moment to listen to uh, some of your writing, um, to listen to sure. some, maybe a poem or two, maybe two poems uh, for now about something that really connects with this talk conversation. Okay. Yeah. I, I can read the poem I wrote on sitting on the porch. How about that? Okay. okay. Read something from the book. Yeah. Is that good? Yeah. That's good. And tell us which book is it from? So the first poem I wrote like four days ago about sitting on the porch and thinking oh, yeah. about my whiteness. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. Is that, is that going to work? That worked? Yeah, it's great. Okay. So this poem was called um, uh, Into the Blazing Orange of Wild Poppies. All these brown and black men are getting killed everywhere, every day in America, and there is always someone there to film it, which means I can turn on my TV and watch a black man being killed every day. I don't want to see it, so I leave off the TV. Instead, I sit on my porch and listen to the flowers without worrying that someone's going to tell me to put a leash on a dog I don't have and ask what I'm doing in the neighborhood. Still, the question persists. What am I supposed to do? Write a poem about God? Cook a steak about God? March on Washington about God? I want to think that this is a God problem, these killings of brown and black men in America, but 
It's an American problem. It's my problem. It's not the flowers problem. Here's my other problem. My legs hurt. One way or the other, I've been marching down a Broadway I don't know for peace, love, and joy my whole life. But everything gets worse. I am tired. That's why I sit on my porch and listen to the flowers. This is my real problem, that I can disappear into the pink and orange of the impatience, that I can write a poem all day about black and brown men being killed in America while I sit up here on my porch and listen to the azaleas. The thing about writing poems about black people getting killed in America is that when I am done writing about injustice and bigotry, I can close my eyes and take a nap with the bougainvillea and not worry that someone is going to run up my porch steps so they can kneel on my neck or put a cigarette out in my eye. I can disappear. This is my problem. I can vanish right into the raging blue of the nasturtiums, into the blazing orange of wild poppies, and into the burning streets of a pack of violets, knowing full well that they won't throw me to the pavement and slap a pair of pistol and stamen handcuffs across my wrist so tight that I bleed from this broken American body. So there's that. Thank you. And then... Uh, I'll read something from the book. What's the title of the book and uh, where could we get it? It's called Mesmerizingly Sadly Beautiful. Um, it was, uh, it is published by Four Way Books. You can get it at uh, the Four Way Books website and you can get it on Amazon. But I would get it on the Four Way Books website because if you buy it directly from the press, you are supporting the press yeah. in this uh, very difficult time. So the website is uh, uh, fourwaybooks.com. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Uh, this book, uh, this poem um, is called uh, A First True Love Big Problem. My problem is that I think Every conversation is filled with love and the big heart. It's the same thing that happens to me when I stand near a tree or open a pint of rum raisin. It becomes everything and I love it. If we talk about Jesus or hamburgers, it's a love story, even though I don't believe in genuflecting and cook a mean medium rare on the open grill. My problem is that when I stand with you near you and we talk about the bad political situation, it's like you are telling me that every wind you have ever felt you felt with me Every log cabin you ever built, you built with me. This means we got bloody and sweaty together. It means we had something beautiful and dirty together. So when we talk about getting the gutters cleaned or how cool that cloud is next to the window looking to get inside, we are bloody and sweaty together. My problem is that this happens the first time we talk ever in the histories of our lives in the body electric gone berserk. It's a true love problem. It's a first true love big problem, and there is nothing I can do about it. It's how my lungs and blood and bad eyesight and overweight snoring all fit in together. Excuse me then if I want something back from you in that moment when we share a table at Starbucks and have words about what bus you might need to take to get downtown to the opera house. It's not fair. It's not right of me. I know it, but I have a problem. It's a first love into a lonely love last love problem. There's too much of it in my heart and I want everyone to have it, all of us. That's my problem, it's huge. It gets me in so much trouble. Do you feel it? Forgive me if I want you to have it too. <laughs> thank you, thank you. 
Thank you. So I hear that as a mature marriage. Uh, Bingo. <laughs> <laughs> which is a very interesting uh, field of uh, not not many people uh, live to survive those kinds of experiences. <laughs> no, Stephen's I'm working hard. I'm trying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've been I've been one myself, and it's it's interesting. It's an interesting thing to explore. Um, and uh, you know the difference between that and passionate love and and early love and all that sort of thing. What are what are some dimensions in that experience that you find, uh, you know, just speaking uh, uh, in prose rather than what you know right. uh, that you find interesting? Um, that is, I mean, it's a lot of work, you know. <laughs> Is it, you're asking me about the, about love and marriage and and especially extended marriage, you know, long term. Yeah, long, I mean, we've been married 17 years. I mean, it's a lot of listening and and um, you know and and compromise and uh, exhaustion and but at the center of all of it is this real foundation and somehow we've managed always to come back to that to that place, no matter how far or angry or, or, um, or disparate we get, you know, there's this, um, this rock, uh, not to use a cliched image, uh, that we can swim back to and stand on. Um, but I'm telling you, it's the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Uh, and I think I knew it was going to be hard that I didn't get married till I was 35. Um, uh, but once I jumped in, I didn't want to be anywhere else. So, uh, so yeah, I, it's hard. <laughs> it's beautiful, but it's hard. Yeah. How long I, have I, you been married? 30, uh, 38 years. So, you know, uh, yeah. <laughs> you well, got 20 years on me. <laughs> one of the things that is interesting in, in my experience, and I, this is really hilarious, but um, we have moved a lot for alternating our careers. One would move, when I got to grad school, we, we moved and came to New York, came back to New York from Rome to do that. We moved to Rome because he wanted to move to Rome. We went to LA because of his job and came back. And, and yet each time it sort of magnified our lives. You know, each of these sacrifices by one person magnified our lives. And I was recounting this to an old friend of mine once and she said, Yes, and every one of those moves could have been a reason to break up. Right. And so it's just, and, and why we didn't, I have no idea. You know, how we found the generosity in each of us to go through these moves, I don't yeah. know. But, uh, and it's, I mean, I, and I don't question it much because it's such a hard job. And there's, you, if you don't have a mystery at the heart of it, I don't think you can really do it. Exactly. I mean, that's, <laughs> I think you're spot on. I mean, I think the mystery is the, is the whole thing. The last, um, we moved to Boston because my wife um, wanted to go to rabbinical school, um, which she's uh, finishing up. Well, she's finished up. She's being ordained in, in a week, you know, and it's been seven years and, you know, it's been, it's been hard and, and long and, and uh, for both of us in different ways. Um, but like, I, I wouldn't have, had it any other way you know it's uh and i can't even tell you why 
it's that mystery that you're yeah. alluding yeah. to. Um, so I think that's, I mean, I gotta say the most important thing to me is love. I mean, it, it really is. It's the most, and be, and it is the most important thing to me because it's such a mystery. And really there aren't any kinds of poems or books or words that, that, that I can muster to describe it. Although I've been trying to do it my whole life. Um, and uh, it's endlessly fascinating to me. <laughs> and I just wish every, it was to everybody. Cause I think if it was to everybody, the world would be a better place. I don't know. It's going back to what VJ was talking about earlier. You know, it'd be more generous. It'd be more open. It'd be more um, accessible. We would just be able to, I mean, the, the poem, this poem um, is really just about like meeting you one, the other immediately and then immediately opening up the heart like yeah. no judgment nothing you're my neighbor you're the post office guy you're the woman down the street you're a student of mine what just boom right there just open up the heart and then we can figure the rest of it out and I think, uh, uh one of the phrases that one of my previous co-hosts had uh brought up to me was replacing curiosity with raising judgment with curiosity so uh you know, I think love is something that's curious. You know, love is something that's always investigating, always like not having the answer, but rather looking for the answer. So I think when we love someone, we're like interested in listening. We're interested in uh, finding out what that person has to offer and yeah. how they can help us grow, you know, yeah. rather yeah. than judging and being like, this person is either right or wrong, or this person is, how can this person help me? Or how can this person advance my agenda, but rather understanding and investigating agendas and investigating our own agenda and uh, having self-love and investigating uh, other people's agendas so that we can like really learn, really come to a place of true yeah. growth, you know? Well, but, uh, exactly. But I think there's also, you have to have a limit to, you're not going to be so curious. You're going to grind the life out of the person. Oh, no, <laughs> no, no, yeah. no, 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 no. Allow that person to guide you. Yeah, well, that's where your your citation of the Rilke letter about love. You might, if you could repeat that, Matthew, yeah. about this idea. I think it's it's a fine point of life that not many people get onto. I think about two how important it is to retain being two different people. Yeah, yeah I mean, I was just going to bring that up as well. The Rook letter is very important. Rilke letter is very important. The seventh letter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was like. Uh, um, you know, I had, I had all these experiences when I was younger of falling in love where I totally gave myself over to whatever it was, you know, the person and, and, uh, it, it was great for a moment, but then it started to become really difficult. And I remember being in college and I came upon this book, the, Letters to Young Poet, and I read um, that letter, and it and it hit me like a truth that I'd never knew existed. Uh, this idea that um, uh, you really have to be alone for a long time before you can um, be with somebody else, and 
And then when you get to that place of being with somebody else, you can't merge with that person. You have to be completely separate to the extent that you can be. And then that's what drives that beautiful tension, you know, like mm -hmm. where you're, it's right there, you know, where the, where knuckles can meet instead of hands clenching. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, that just spoke to me in my, in my, I must've been 19 or 20. And, um, you know, that, that like all that we do, all the work that we do that is, that is out in the world or in our hearts is all about getting to that place. And I think we're always striving or I am to, to be in that situation where I'm not giving over to somebody else, but rather just sharing a space with them. Um, yeah. So, it's really good to be able to dive into the love conversation and be able to understand the nuances and like a little bit more specificity and language about love and heart centered because i think a lot of times people will use that as like uh kind of a, a way out of a conversation oh we should just love each other you know we don't want to right, right, discuss right. we don't want to like you know go into the nuances of this discussion rather just love each other yeah, you know, yeah. i don't know yeah what do you think about that and how can we get more nuanced into like in, in marriage i think it's or at least in relationship one-on-one -on -one relationship it's a little bit easier to navigate than communal relationships, having love for community. And yeah. How, how do you find like community love or how do you experience love for community or love for, um, you know, our fellow man, if you will, or our fellow woman? Yeah. I mean, and I think, I think that, um, I mean, I have uh, in my life, because I'm a teacher, I have these, daily communities which exist within the context of the classroom yeah um and so what i'm very have always been very uh or what, what's always been very important to me is creating or facilitating or opening up a space where every kid every young person in that space feels completely comfortable um and that they all have their own individual voices and all of those voices are um, important, compelling. Mm -hmm. And I think if you can create that, at least as a teacher, and I'm also, I'm giving myself way too much credit there because I think they're the people that, that, that allow for that to happen, that opening, then you can get this thing, this communal love that you're talking about, which I think is, yeah. is really, um, almost more important now in this world <laughs> than individual love but i don't know i mean again it's like it's all mysterious i don't know how it all works and plays all i know is that i'm one guy trying to do my best to be as generous and open-hearted as possible in every situation that i walk into yeah definitely that individual to me love is the base of the foundation you know if we don't have practice in individual love if we don't have the um you know kind of exposure to individual love we will never have communal love you know i don't yeah. think well, but I, I think there's also a trap that um, if you don't have a sense of uh, what uh, Buddhists call equanimity, yeah, your love of a person or your family can actually become an obstacle to communal love because the heart of tribalism is love, um, love of your people and only your people. Yeah, And uh, when you see the lengths to which privileged parents will go to get their kids into the right school. You know, <laughs> yeah. 
yeah. uh, you're in the middle of all this. What if that energy were devoted to solving problems of inequality? You know, that, oh, yeah. That, yeah. that is, the, that is one of the, the most heartbreaking contradictions is we have our best people in terms of the, their uh, intelligence, their financial leverage, um, in some ways their heart, devote, we devote so much time to advancing our tribe. And I think that this uh, really is, a, the, the country is so tribal and um, there's, a, there's enormous amounts of love everywhere, but it's just being locked up in these reservoirs of tribe and not breaking through to really, you know, to carry this ridiculously, to irrigate the plain, you know, it's just every, everybody's dying and drought stricken because everything's just locked up and, uh, and we're, we're really suffering from this. Yeah, it's, I, again, I don't, I don't know. I don't have the answers. <laughs> no, yeah. no, I know it's, it's, uh, I don't it's, have the answers. It's, yeah. uh, it's hard. It's hard being alive now. I wonder if it was hard being alive in the fifties. Oh, totally. yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's all those challenges. We always have to rise up to our challenges of our times and, you know, yeah. uh, each time has pretty much this, you know, I think they have variations on same themes, you know, like in the past hundred, 200 years has been variations on the same themes. You know, the yeah. ideas of at least in the past hundred years, every hundred years probably is cycles through its, its yeah. laundry, if you will. And then right. we have to return through the century, the previous century then, uh, you know. Well, the, yeah, these futurists I cited earlier say that this country has about an 80-year change cycle. Yeah. Um, the World War II was the last. This is the next. Um, and a lot. And in the nonprofit world, people have been working from this paradigm for a long time, looking for the current moment. Is, is this that time? Is this that time? And now we all think this is that time, but maybe something even bigger is coming. Who knows? Yeah. Um, but I, I just... I, I, I'm thinking about what you were saying about tribalism and, and love. And, um, and I, for me, just because of my experience, I sort of always seem to go back to, to, the, to the schoolyard or to school because I've spent my whole life in, in schools. And, um, you know, I, again, I grew up in, the, in New York City in the 60s and, you know, to middle class, uh, progressive parents and, we all, and we grew, you know, I lived in this housing, the Michelama housing projects, and we all went to public school and it was incredibly diverse, um, racially, ethnically, politically, uh, financially. And, um, it seemed to be, and maybe this is me romanticizing it, but it seems to me in retrospect, like it was one of the most foundational and democratic experiences that I've ever had because um, I think because money wasn't at the center of everything. And, um, and maybe that's the problem here. Maybe it's money and greed. And, uh, but I don't, again, again, I, I, I don't, I don't really know. Yeah, definitely have like, uh, you know, special interests and funding of certain, you had know, to follow the money and all this kind of thing and understand where resources are going to, 
to fund certain uh, voices and why there's inequality in the amount of uh, allocation, you know, of this is a huge issue, but the sociological machine has to be reformed. And I don't know to what extent we all kind of realize that the uh, the machine itself needs to be reexamined, you know, blown up, maybe. Yeah. 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 Well, that's that's what I think the conversation is getting to now. Um, yeah. Uh, Piketty, the French uh, economist, has said that the years between 1950 and 1980 calls them the golden 30, mm. because because at least in Western and developed culture economies, um, there was a rapid increase in income and a stable level of equality in terms of distribution. So there was a golden age to that environment you, you're talking about. Yeah, and yeah. I grew up in a town where. We only had one high school, so everybody went to yeah. that high school. And so I had friends who went to Stanford. I had friends who went to prison. You know, it yeah. was like, it, it was, and money, there were a couple wealthier families, but everybody else was exactly the same. Yeah. You know, we were all clipping coupons and, you know, right. freezing beef and you know, <laughs> just, nobody ate out. Um, and uh, so, you know, it was, it was a, a a, a sameness and an equality that uh, really uh, is unimaginable now. You know, you you have a child, you might have an underprivileged child who gets into a good school and suddenly it's where do you fly? Where do you weekend? Where do you ski? You know, right. the the access issues just immediately set you apart. And yeah. It's very, very challenging. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I've been fortunate, you know, I work at this at this school here in Boston and it's, um, it's an independent school. There's a lot of money, a lot of resources. Um, I mean, money, crazy money. I mean, stupid money, money that you, that you can't even imagine. And, um, and one of the perks of being a teacher there is that I get to send my kids there essentially for free. Um, and, you know, one of the discussions that my wife and had before she went, um, uh, my oldest daughter was, how are we going to deal with that? How are we going to deal with the financial disparity between the friends that she makes and the reality that we live in? Um, because the, the majority of kids who go there live these lives where they have four houses and private jets and, and you know, don't have to worry about money and um, where we do, you know, it's that I'm a teacher and, um, uh, again, I don't have the answers, but it's, 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 I didn't growing up have that. That wasn't part of my reality as a person, you know, like, mm -hmm. like you, Bruce, like we were all clipping coupons and we were all driving Volkswagens that were 10 years old and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, so also I want to give you a chance to, uh, talk a little bit about not counting your own work, which is one, uh, book, song, play, poem, or film, whichever in the world could experience. You put down uh, Getsu, I think? Getsu, yes. Yeah, tell us a little bit about that and how it influenced you. Or, <laughs> you That's know. an Art Blakey song, Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers. Um, according to Art Blakey, the word Getsu means uh, fantasy in Japanese. Uh, uh, I, I uh, first heard that song in New York I don't know, my early 20s, mid 20s. And um, I'm a big jazz guy. And 
sort of anytime I feel like I need a kickstart, a jumpstart to get writing, I'll put that, that, that piece of music on because of um, the drive, the percussive drive yeah. of, uh, of Blakey and, and then, and the horns. And it just, it's kind of a surreal piece of music and just uh, it really gets my, my poetic juices going. Interesting. interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. Yeah. Jazz is a beautiful thing. Who were some of your other favorite musicians in jazz? Um, right now there's a young guy. Um, his name is uh, Aaron Parks. He's doing some really interesting stuff. Um, there's a, uh, a drummer um, named Makaya McCraven and, um, and a saxophone player named Kamasi Washington who, uh, who are, you know, there's this new kind of uh, 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 group of, of younger folks who are doing very interesting melodic stuff with, um, with, and, and percussive stuff in the jazz world. I think there was like a little glut um, in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, but there's been this resurgence of young people and they're, they're doing some you know, beautiful stuff. Kamasi Washington um, actually just wrote the soundtrack for Michelle Obama's uh, film, Becoming. You know, she had that book come out and they made it into a Netflix, Netflix special and, um, and he did the uh, he did the soundtrack. It's gorgeous stuff. I mean, it's just yeah. So yeah. maybe I'll pull up Ugetsu so that then we'll listen to it at the end of the unless okay. <laughs> we'll listen a little bit to it. But, yeah. Um, so I just want to make a couple of quick announcements. This is Radio Free Brooklyn, uh, the Truth to Power show. So you're listening to Radio Free Brooklyn. Uh, Radio Free Brooklyn is a independent uh, listener sponsored radio. Um, let me see. Let me just pull up this thing on here. Okay, um, you know. So if you're listening out to your computer, you can free yourself up by listening through our apps on iPhone or Android by downloading them on the app stores, the respective app stores. Uh, be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for the latest news and news programming and upcoming RFP events. You can sign up at readyforbooking.org/newsletter. So once we start going with uh, events, you can find out about them and first to know. Uh, COVID-19 is dropping everyone's lives right now, and Radio for Booking is no exception. We want you to know that we've made every effort to ensure the health and well-being of our hosts, staff, and community at large. We've closed both our studios and canceled live events, but our hosts are still doing their best to continue bringing new original programming by broadcasting live from home or pre-recording uh, from their home studios or selecting their best rebroadcasts from their past shows. With more of our revenue streams evaporated, we need your help. We realize that you may be hurting too, but if you can afford a small donation, it will go a long way towards helping us stay on the air. Here are three ways you can help. First, you can give a one-time donation or monthly pledge by going to readyforbrooklyn.org slash donate. Uh, there you can find some great t-shirts, mugs, and other swag, and we'd like to send you to say thanks. Uh, you can also use your phone to go to text RFB give 5 that's number 5, to 44321. It only takes a moment, and you'll be able to give use your digital wallet for your donation. Finally, if you shop on Amazon, uh, you shouldn't be, but if you do, I guess we all do. You can go to Amazon.com/smile and register. Ready for Brooklyn. Dot uh, as a nonprofit you want to support. 
when you do a percentage of your sales will go to RFB that will cost you nothing no donation is too big or too small whatever you can afford will make a huge difference we thank you from the bottom of our hearts and wish you uh, listeners all the health and happiness in the world uh, thank you alright so uh, we have a few more minutes so why don't we what's else coming up for you as far as like what are some like some of the experiences you've had that really molded you um, to the place you are? Some of the pivotal moments, pivotal experiences that you feel were kind of, uh, you know, that helped you find your truth and, and power. Becoming a father, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, I think having kids has been the most uh, powerful being married and having kids has been the most powerful um uh thing that's ever that's ever happened to me um and uh it sort of reconstituted the land my internal landscape um i think for the first part of my life first 35 or so years of my life i was very focused on me and my own personal growth and my own immediate whims and desires, my needs. And then when I got married and had kids, the whole thing shifted and my life for better or worse became about the other. Um, and maybe in, in some respects, my whole life was always about the other. Um, I, I, I consider myself to be a, uh, a pretty generous guy. Um, but that really just got amped up. And, um, you know, I really, I began to understand what sacrifice was all about and um, putting all of my own needs and desires aside, at least in the beginning um, of, of the experience of being a parent when the kids were young, but even now too, you know, it's every day is a challenge. Um, and uh balancing out taking care of them taking care of myself taking care of the house taking care of the finances taking care of the lawn taking care of my students um has really sort of shown me what generosity is 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 really about and uh i feel very fortunate actually um because for me being generous is and kind and decent and civil are uh the bedrock of what makes me who I am. Um, and I've tried to do that in my own poetry as well, not to write about me so much, <laughs> but more about the world. Why don't we close with the poem actually? Why don't we close with uh, one more poem close. and then we'll, and then uh, we'll go we'll, into we'll a get to and get to. Yeah, no, we'll yeah, yeah, that's yeah. Great. great. Well, thank you very much for having me. Thank I appreciate you so much. Yeah. Oh, it's been lovely to talk to you, Matthew, and uh, enjoy the summer. Hopefully, uh, you'll get off to uh, someplace wonderful. And good luck with your book. And please give us the title of your book again while you're reading. Sure, it's um, it's called um, mesmerizingly sadly beautiful, and uh, and it's um, published by Four Way Books. And I will actually end with a poem that's sort of about my kids. And it's called, If You Don't Want Your Kids to Have Sex, Don't Finish the Basement. <laughs> Which is the opening poem to the book. <laughs> um, 
This guy Lev at the dinner party said, if you don't want your kids to have sex, don't finish the basement. I don't remember anything anymore. My 52-year-old brain, a soggy piece of kale. But I remembered what Lev said. It's because Lev is the heart in Lvov, where all the stories come from. Here's the story. We were sitting, eating salmon, and he was talking about his kids, all grown up. And my kids were in the basement playing ping pong, not yet 13. There was beer and wine and gluten-free challah and gluten-free tiramisu, and the walls were red and gluten-free. That's the whole story. The other story is that when a guy says something like that, you have to remember where you were when you first had sex. It could have been in a car, in an attic, between two trees, under the moon, near the factory, inside the deep blue sea, in the onion patch. Sex is an onion. It's translucent and sweet and will make you cry your face off. It's a swimming pool on fire and a gorilla who knows how to speak seven languages. If you are lucky enough to have sex in a finished basement, this is a good thing. If you have sex in an unfinished basement, not so good. All that dust, those exposed water heaters, boilers, and rusted rakes. So when Lev said, if you don't want your kids to have sex, don't finish the basement, I took a bite of my salmon, and here's the last part of the story. My kids are going to grow up and have sex a sad and wide-eyed ecstatic sex, if they're lucky. And so I left the table in the dark middle of winter to finish the basement. Buy some rugs, some cheap pillows, and a jukebox, one of those old school Wurlitzers with the automatic eye. Fill it up with all the songs that make your heart burst, I will tell them. Play your music till the needle runs those records, bare, bone, beauty, and glistens. Thanks a lot. Thank you. <laughs> that is fabulous. Cool. Thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate it. Where, where were you when I needed a dad? <laughs> <laughs> let me just see. Um, you got a getsu? Yeah, let me put up a getsu now. Okay. I really enjoyed this and, and I appreciate that you asked and, and I hope you are all safe and and uh taken care and yeah. oh absolutely enjoy Matthew. Thank you and uh, Wonderful voice. Oh, good. Yeah. Now it seems like I guess it's still still loading, but uh, so uh, check it out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Cool, cool. So, so this this today is your first day out of school. Your school ended Friday, so summer starts today. Correct. Yes. That's that still kind of carries a wonderful feeling. I'm sure it does. It does. <laughs> <laughs> Well, sorry to get you up and up and running so early. I'm up and running at five thirty, and it doesn't matter. It's like, okay. all good. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. So. Oh dear, this uh, I guess it seems to be loading through. It's uh, trying to download it or something. Uh, I was trying to play it. Let me just ask you, Matthew, about jazz. Do you go out? Are there jazz clubs you enjoy, or, or are you? There are a few here in Boston. Um, there you go. Not like New York. Mm. Yeah. Overlaying. But we, uh, you good? You got yeah, it? Now we're playing it, yeah. All right. It's on iTunes, yeah. Okay. Thank you. All right. All right, guys. Peace and love. Thank you very All much. All right. Enjoy Thank the you. day. Have a Enjoy good day. day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Right. Cheers. Bye-bye. Thanks.